week of November 19th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 639, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Los Angeles, protesting outside the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, I'm Michael Giltz. Strike, strike, strike. Uh, I hate to tell you this, Michael. You're about 140 days too late. New strike. I am angry, Sperling, because I was there and you killed it during the auditions. You were perfect to host the Oscars. You did a great job. You were great from start to finish. They really wanted a solo act and you really, you just did great. I loved your Billy Crystal imitation. And I'm just really annoyed that they picked Jimmy Kimmel yet again to host the Oscars for the fourth time. You were funnier. You deserved the job. My sympathy. Well, also, it probably didn't help when I said, and the winner is, uh, oh, wait, oh, no, that's the wrong one. Hold on. Yeah, that joke sort of land hard. That's right. It's not easy being on stage, is it? It's not easy with a live audience trying to tell a joke. But you would know about that because you went to the theater this week. Yeah, I did. So, um, you know, you want to know how advertising works on this social media stuff. So on Instagram Reels, which, no, I don't spend several hours a day scrolling through Instagram Reels. He said lying. I, um, I never spend time on Instagram. So there. <laughs> um, well, uh Needless to say, there was this thing that kept coming up. Alex Edelman was the, and I just thought it was, oh, it was like a one man show. Uh, and my daughter saw it too. And I was told, oh, you got to go see this show down at the Mark Taper Forum. Uh, this Alex Edelman guy, it's really good. And then I heard it got good reviews. So bought some tickets. He was on Broadway. He was on Broadway. It was a, it was I a knew nothing acclaimed, about that. critically acclaimed short run show. Absolutely. Knew nothing Maybe about Maybe if you were on Instagram about- Reels, I apologize. Maybe if you were on Instagram Reels less often, you could read up about these shows and you'd know about them. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The Mark Taper Forum had to cancel its entire season because they didn't have enough subscribers. It was a big mm-hmm. problem. It was a big to-do here in Los Angeles. I said, you know what? The joke that I saw on Instagram was funny. People tell me it's a really good show. I'll go support them. So I'm walking yeah. in with my family. And all of a sudden, there's these metal detectors out of nowhere. I'm like, wait, I've never had to go through a metal detector to go into a, to a, this is, it's not a black box theater. It holds about 400, 500 people. But why am I going through, maybe even more, but why am I going through a metal detector? And I I turned to the guy, I said, is this a new thing? He said, yeah, it's a new security protocol. And I said, for, he says, no, just for this show. And I said, okay. So my you're, you're said, revealing that you, you're revealing that you know absolutely nothing about the show you're about to see. Not even the tagline, I guess. Yeah, I had no idea what it was about. But it's about this. He's uh, you know an Orthodox Jew who decides in 2017 that he's going to go attend a basically a white supremacist um, meeting. He goes to a white supremacist meeting in Brooklyn or no Queens in Queens. Uh, and th- the show is hilarious. It's very, very good. Uh, and he started off, he actually kind of broke the fourth, well, he broke his routine. He said, you know, um, I should probably, I'm going to like not be, I'm going to go off script here. I once went to a, a talk given by John Updike who said, if you're lucky, what you write and your, your creative efforts will be in sync and in conversation with the times in which you live. And he was like, I've hit the jackpot because obviously <laughs> with the whole, you know, Israeli Palestine thing, he's, it's, it's a big, it's a big deal now. 
Judaism and racism is always goes hand in hand, you know, and the Palestinian struggle and the white supremacy. It's always an eternal topic, sadly. But yes, yeah. so, uh, and you recommend the show. I mean, from what I've heard Very in New York, good. I didn't get to see it. Terrific show, really well acclaimed. If it's still playing at the Mark Taper, catch it there. Or if it goes on tour, uh, you'll have to put a link in our show notes so people can catch the Alex Edelman show. I went to see a show this week and I saw the touring production of the Broadway show To Kill a Mockingbird. In this case, it starred Richard Thomas, John Boy of the Waltons. And uh, I hadn't seen the show when it was on Broadway, so I was very happy to see it. I was a little mixed on the adaptation that uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin had done. It, it combines the novel that we know and the film and the earlier draft of that novel called Ghost of a Watchman. So it creates more of an arc for the Atticus Finch character. And I had no problem with that. But the show overall and the tone and some of the speeches and stuff, I was like, huh? it, it kind of diluted even more the, the story of the man who's wrongly accused of rape in the show. There were still some good actors on it. It wasn't great. And it's in a big theater. It's hard to see a, a play in a big space like that. But I was lucky enough to be down up front. I was kind of, I'm always glad to see a show, especially when I don't personally have to pay for it. Uh, my, my sister sent my mom and her friends to it. But I'm not sure I would recommend it. Though Richard Thomas is a solid actor. But there you go. Um, you know, he's, of course, the show ended. They bowed. The curtain comes down. And someone in the audience yells out, good night, John Boy. I mean, it's like the poor guy. He's had a 50-year career since the Waltons. But they won't let it go. Yeah, Richard Thomas. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I just dawned on me, Michael. We have some hope. We do have hope. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. we, may have, we may have lost out on the Oscar gig. But, but the Golden Globes found someone to air their ceremony cbs will be airing it and they are looking for a host so i know nbc ditched it but cbs picked morality it up. big platform morality big platform big platform yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, everything old is new again, whether it's the Golden Globes or Richard Thomas, John Boy, and the Beatles. I'm just so happy. The Beatles have a top 10 hit in the U.S., uh, a number one single in the U.K. We're not sure where their reissues of their greatest hit sets, the Red Album and the Blue Album. Not sure where they're going to land on the U.S. charts this week, but they will land on the charts. Uh, and the Rolling Stones have a hit song, and you name it. So um, very cool to see that. Um, it's been 59 years between their first top 10 hit and their latest top 10 hit. That's the greatest of all time, excluding holiday songs. I will make that exception. I don't like parsing it down, but holiday songs are sort of a mild exception. But guess what? Andy Williams has the record of 63 years. The Beatles are number two with 59 years and some months. So that is a huge accomplishment, even if you include holiday hits. And it's their 35th top 10 hit. That's the most ever for a band. And the Stones, which I would not have guessed that, they're number two with 23 top 10 hits. So the Beatles wow. are still on top. Hmm? And, they, and they've had one for every decade. It reminds me of the story Robin Williams told of when he won his Academy Award. I guess Jack Nicholson won the Best Actor Award that year. And he, they were backstage waiting to go to the press conference. And, and uh, Jack Nicholson turns to Robin and he goes, Hey, Robin, I got one of these for every decade now. Because <laughs> it was the third time. <laughs> He's like, take that, kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that's, that's breaking news. Uh, Jack Nicholson is a critically acclaimed guy. And if I could just ask the trades, please pull back on your alert emails. My God, I got an email alert today from Deadline. 
It was linking to a story from executive editor Michael Sipley, remarking and remembering how he covered the release of the film The Polar Express at the New York Times as an editor in 2004. Stop the presses! Basically, it says he fought to keep a description in a review that compared Santa's big sack of toys to, quote, an airborne scrotum. They're like, really? In a family film review, do we have to include this? And he fought for it and it stayed in. This is not breaking news. This is not a news alert. The evening news does this. Every time you watch the evening news, they say, breaking news, just in. It's like, oh my God, yes, there's always new news. But So relax, please save the breaking alerts for actual breaking news alerts. I wish if I didn't have to do the podcast, I would have canceled these emails long ago. I hope people just don't click on them. Just ignore them. Yeah, I actually uh, start deleting them. I try not to open them as a way of like yeah. sending them a message. Mm-hmm. Now, you and know- This is uh, not working. I don't know whether in, in other countries on CNN, like CNN International, Wolf Blitzer, his show, uh, but he constantly, uh, breaking news, like that's how he yeah. starts every single, but that's like his tagline, right? I'm like, hey, your tagline is like fire, 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 probably a bad <laughs> idea. Exactly. (laughs) And if the Beatles are the hot boy band of the moment, Stray Kids are right up there. This K-pop group, their new album just debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200. It's their fourth number one album in a row. Watch out, BTS, that military deferment. You know, my gosh, uh, we're going to miss you. Hurry on back. You know, but, you know, if you want to stay on top of Stray Kids, subscribe to Billboard's Alerts. And if you want to Stay on all top of all the entertainment news. Oh my God, I can't get it out. Listen to Showbiz Sandbox. Woof, this was a big intro. What are we going to talk about this week? Oh my God, I forgot. Sperling, what happened on X this week? On X? What are you talking about? The, uh, the, the, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Oh, are you talking about the anti-Semitic Elon Musk thingy? <laughs> Where, like, Yes, he, if you're he, wondering why media companies are are vacating X or Twitter, it's not because they are taking a moral stance. It's because they are risk averse. They don't want to be involved in anything that's going to upset anyone. So it's just easier to walk away from a platform like Twitter, especially with declining viewership. So, you know, they don't want to have their ads running next to neo-Nazi propaganda. They're not making a big political statement. They're not being brave. They just don't want people to hate them. They just want to promote their movies and such. Right. And, uh, you know, to give you some sense of X and where we stand with X, and I know this isn't a show about social media, but uh, during that uh, Just For Us, Alex Edelman said uh, he was trying to explain how, and it was right at the start of the show, so I'm not ruining anything, how uh, he he got into a tiff with a white supremacist and it went back and forth, it turned viral. So he started making a Twitter list of all of these people that were responding. And he said, does anybody know what a Twitter list is? And most of the people had no clue. And he said, ah, it doesn't really matter what a Twitter list is. You can make lists of people. He's like, look, it doesn't matter because it's, it's a little used function on a dying platform. <laughs> so you don't need to know what it, what it is. But he said, and this is the funny part. He said, uh, yeah, I made this list. And when you make a list and you put somebody on it, they get notified that you're on the list and other people can see the lists that they're on. So I started putting all these white supremacists on this list and I labeled the list Jewish Defense Fund Contributors. <laughs> Anyway, I guess you had to be there. Uh, but you asked me a question, and that was, uh, what is happening on X? What, what, uh, what do, is that what you were referring to, the, the media companies? Yes. 
Okay. Well, I guess we're not going to cover that on this week uh, because we just did. But I tell you what we will be talking about this week on Jovis Sandbox, Beatlemania. We're loving Beatlemania, as you just pointed out. It's, it's Beatlemania all over the world. Well, I'm going to say, at least, Michael, you're excited, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, less exciting, uh, unfortunately, is the box office news for the Marvels, which collapsed in its second week. Coming up next, the critical reappraisal, as some folks argue, yeah, the Marvels is actually pretty weird and good. You can almost count on that. In any case, the strikes are over and it's award season, so Michael will start touting a movie he hasn't even seen yet. George Clooney, you can thank us later. Speaking of which, that book is the next book on my to-read list. I will be starting it this week. You want to know what book it is? Stay tuned. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the fallout from the strike. Analyze more of the details about the deal and listen to Justine Bateman. She is not telling anyone how to vote. She's not doing that. But she is saying the world will end if they approve this contract. So, (laughs) you know, do what you want. We'll explain why. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. I was trying to set you up for something. I thought you were going to do it, but I guess you're saving it for the end of the show. Stay tuned. All right. We're looking for box office from around the world. This is for the week ending November 19th. We cover the entire week's box office because people go to the movies seven days a week. We're the only people who do it. And the number one movie around the world is The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It opened worldwide to $99 million and it cost about $100 million to make. So already, you know, it's very comparable to the Marvels. Very poor critical reviews, slightly better audience reaction than the Marvels, but not that much bigger by some measurements. Uh, but will it fall hard in its second week? Was anybody waiting for this movie, this this prequel to the Hunger Games movies? They've got a stage show in the works. They were talking about theme parks. I think they're crazy. I enjoyed the first three Hunger Games books. I enjoyed them, especially the third one. But I, I think they're way, way ahead of themselves and thinking that this is another multiverse. But we'll have to see where it ends up next week. Two weekends, 10 days is not a long amount of time to wait before you start yelling a movie is a flop or a hit. As they did with Elemental, you know, you can wait a little bit and see, oh, look, you're getting some traction here. The Marvels, however, did not get traction. In its second week, it made $51 million worldwide. It's at $160 million and counting. It costs $220 million to make. That's double the Hunger Games prequel. So this movie fell really, really hard. Biggest second weekend drop in Marvel Cinematic Universe history. Anyway, it fell hard. What was for the first? If that, I thought that would have been the first. Um, I think it was the, one of the Hulks or um, uh, one of the Thors. I, I forget. But it, you okay, know, well, I, I didn't mean to throw you a curveball there. Yeah. Not at all. But some of the movies, of course, open really, really big. So you can drop 65% and it's really not that bad. In this case, it started off meh. And then it dropped 78% in North America. Worldwide, it dropped from 110 million to 51 million. So that's like a 55% drop worldwide. That all depends on when you're opening up and what countries, but it ain't a good look. Uh, and again, the Marvels, why is it not doing so well? It's the 33rd film in the franchise. So Hunger Games made 100 million, Marvels made about 50 million. So did Trolls Band Together. The uh, Justin Timberlake movie, he could use some good news. That made $50 million this week. It's at $108 million worldwide. Have to see where it ends up, but at least it's got good reviews and showing solid traction in the markets where it's already open. Uh, 
Uh, Tiger 3. This was the Indian Hindi film that opened up on the Sunday of Diwali, and it stars Salman Khan. We had just one day of grosses last week. That was $12 million, and we said, this movie's going to make a lot more money. Like, Monday and Tuesday are like weekends because it's Diwali, and that's exactly what happened. This week, it made $34 million. It's at $46 million and counting. Five Nights at Freddy's is still chugging along, even though we're past Halloween. It made another $20 million. It's at $272 million worldwide. In China, the drama Last Suspect made about $17 million. That's just under $70 million worldwide. And I love this. Are there any other movies like this? Thanksgiving is a horror film based on a fake trailer in another movie. The Tarantino uh, extravaganza Grindhouse, or was that... Rodriguez, I forget. Uh, no, I think it was Rodriguez, wasn't it? Um, you know, but they had the trailers. I don't know who made the trailers. Actually, they had the for double Grindhouse. Bill. It was it was a double yeah. bill. It was Tarantino and Rodriguez. They both made one, right? But I'm not sure who did the trailer. That's what I'm saying. So there was a fake trailer for a fake horror film called Thanksgiving. Eli Roth turned it into an actual horror film, and it's opened up to 13 million dollars. And as with a lot of their movies, it only costs 15 million dollars to make. So they're looking at profitability pretty quickly. So is there any other movie based on a fake movie trailer uh, that would be interesting to know? If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Now you can find us on twitter.com. Okay, now if you want to know why I'm saying twitter.com, there's there's a reason why. And if you wait until the end of the show, or do, Michael, do you think I should say it now? Just read the, we listen to our viewers, that's why. Or we listen to our listeners, I should say. Tell us what one of our listeners said. Well, Robert from Winnipeg, and, and I'm, I'm scrolling down. This is me stalling so I can scroll down. He says, look, just to simplify your show text, you can stop referring to X as the old Twitter, as long as they keep the old domain name URL active. And they are. You can find us, you can find Showbiz Sandbox on Twitter, which, by the way, is accurate. Uh, and Robert from Winnipeg, Canada, thank you for, for letting us know that. I appreciate it because the whole X Twitter thing is killing me. Uh, Twitter.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can, you can like us, face, follow us. You can also uh, find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. What do you call it when you blank somebody out of the universe? Like censor them? It's called X. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to X out X. That's for sure. <laughs> I have no idea what you're even referring to there. Really? Oh, good Lord. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. That made about $9 million this week. $150 million worldwide. It's slowing down very quickly. Uh, I think a lot of people like me are going, you know what? I know a lot of people who saw it. Nobody loved it. And it's three and a half hours long. And when every time I look at a, at a running time, it just doesn't work for me. It's either too early, like six, or it's nine or 10. I think, I don't want to get out of that movie at one in the morning. So I'm waiting for it to come on Apple. And as soon as I see it on Apple, I'm going to cancel my subscription because it's gone up from $7 to $10 a month. And there's really not that much on there for me to watch. I will re-up on Apple in March or April once that World War II miniseries from Tom Hanks and Spielberg called 
Lords of the Air, Emperors of the Air, whatever it's called, the World War II about the air, air, uh, air wars. Um, once that's up there, uh, I will watch that. And so I'll, I'll subscribe for another month or two, but I'm getting off Apple, I must say. Uh, back in China, Be My Family made another $9 million. That's at $16 million and counting. Here's a movie I was going to talk about anyway. I was so annoyed that we had missed this. There's a big Italian hit. It paid the art circuit. It did really well at festivals. Um, I, it's black and white. It's period. It's about women's rights and women coming into their own. And it's been a huge hit in Italy, and it's been completely off our radar. I'm so annoyed we didn't know about the box office for this movie. It's made 2 or $3 million for a week for several weeks now, which is a lot of money in Italy. This week, the film There's Still Tomorrow made $5 million. It's at $19 million and counting. It's got a lot of great momentum. Uh, looking forward to seeing this movie when it comes to North America. And it's an Italian hit that we missed. And if you're in Italy, next time you see a movie that should be on our list, if it makes at least a million dollars anywhere in the world, we want to know about it because we love to track this stuff. I'm sure this will be Italy's submission for the Oscars. If it's not already, it should be. And, uh, you know, there's Holocaust-themed movies that will probably win, but it could be on the short list. We'll have to see. But there's still tomorrow, an Italian hit. We apologize for not having covered it in the last few weeks. We love to see this stuff. We love to see vibrant cinema and love to see movies succeed in their local markets. And so uh, we're sorry that we're just getting on the bandwagon now, but there's still tomorrow. So you can go see there's still tomorrow in your theaters in Italy and hopefully soon in North America. Going down the list, the holdovers from Alexander Payne is uh, holding well. They made another $4 million. It's at $8 million in counting. It's just gone a little bit wider. Uh, Priscilla from Sofia Coppola, that's turning into her biggest hit of all time practically. Not quite there yet, but it's at $17 million in counting. Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour, it made another $3 million this week. It will be in theaters next Thursday, Friday, Saturday for the next few weeks. But it's now at $244 million worldwide. It needs another $17 million to beat the Michael Jackson documentary and become the highest grossing concert film slash music documentary of all time, not adjusting for inflation. So Taylor, you need to get on the ball and tell your Swifties, put me over the top, or you need to re-release it in January, February and make an event all over again by adding another song or two or some behind the scenes stuff. But we got to get this puppy over the top. You're so close. You can do it. And going down the list, speaking of getting this puppy over the top, Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, that's at $192 million. It's going to hit $200 million, which means we're going to get more Paw Patrol. Uh, and uh, Taika Watiti, his soccer film, Next Goal Wins, opened decently in North America for a soccer movie, made $2.5 million. And I think that's about it, except in, in limited release, Saltburn with Barry Keegan, who is an unlikely star. He's a terrific actor, uh, but it's written and directed by Emerald Fennel. She's a real talent, and it has begun to expand, and it made $1.6 million with a great per-theater average. That's another movie to keep an eye on. And one movie we want to keep an eye on is The Boy and the Heron, the Miyazaki film. Last week, it made $7 million. It was approaching $90 million. But I can't find it anywhere. I can't find updated box office on this movie. Not on the charts, not on Wikipedia, not on Comscore. It's just disappeared. I can't imagine it collapsed and made less than a million dollars this week. Uh, but I don't know anything about it. So we're keeping our eye on that movie, looking for an update soon. 
And finally, Stop Making Sense. It's official. The Stop Making Sense reissue made more money than Stop Making Sense did the first time around. It made almost $5 million the first time around, and now it's made over $5 million. So that's awesome. It grossed more this time, mostly seen by people who weren't around when the first movie opened up. So great movie. It's on just a handful of screens anymore. Hopefully, they'll put it out again next year because that's the actual 40th anniversary. But $10.6 million worldwide. That's the box office. And I have to tell you, Sperling, between the Marvels and what I'm anticipating is the franchise fatigue for the Hunger Games, uh, people want to know, is Marvel dead? Is there superhero fatigue? Is there franchise fatigue? Do you think it's just, you know, make good movies like the Spider-Man Spider-Verse movie and people will come? I think it's the, the latter. I think, you know what? Nobody, when you're making a movie simply to make money like that, it's obvious and nobody wants to see it. Go back to making original films. Yes, they're risky. They're really risky. You'll make 10. And if you're lucky, two will be outright blockbusters. But you know what? Making the 900th version of a Marvel movie is just, it, it, we're tired of it. By the way, you know what? They don't not, make Westerns the way they used to either in the 1950s. There's a reason well, that's, for that. You're, now you're arguing that... You're arguing the different thing. You're saying that people are tired of the genre when you compare it to a Western. At one point, Westerns, they didn't dominate the box office the way superhero movies, but there were a lot of them. And there were also like seven or eight out of the top 10 TV shows for a number of years in the in the 50s and 60s. Right. It was just all Westerns all the time. And there were comic Westerns and drama and anthology Westerns, all types of Westerns, action Westerns, family ones, if you include, say, Little House. But that would argue that people are tired of the genre. I think it's... I'm sure it's a combination of both, but I'm not sure the Marvels is a good example of not taking a risk. It has a it has a new young director. It's pretty wacky. It's pretty out there. It's not a standard story. There's just too much servicing of the Marvel overarching storyline. They needed to cut loose and say, enough with the big 20 movie buildup. Just stop trying to do that this time around and make a good movie that stands on its own because uh, they were halfway there from all the reviews and reports. But if people are tired of it, God help them. You know, uh, I mean, as as the Hollywood Reporter pointed out, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 did great. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse did great. Loki Season 2 ended very strongly in terms of audience. It hit 11 million people overnight, just like the first episode of the new season did. Gen V is doing well. Invincible is a hit. You know, but of course, on the other hand, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Blue Beetle, The Flash, the latest Ant-Man were not hits. But if people are tired of it, the studios haven't heard yet. We've got almost, well, we've got Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom in December. And then a Spidey spinoff called Madam Web in February, which I have to admit, I saw the trailer and I thought, well, that looks kind of cool. Deadpool 3 then comes out in July. So we have, you know, March, April, May, June, four months with no big superhero movie in the theaters. But from July to October or November, you got a new one every month. Deadpool 3, Craven the Hunter, Transformers 1, the new Joker, and then the new Venom. So, you know what? They're still coming. If that counts as a pause, <laughs> you know, one every four weeks, well, okay. <laughs> Maybe it does. Well, you know, I want to give a shout out to the Taika Waititi movie uh, that, that you mentioned because I saw it and it's, I would say, see it with an audience. Uh, Next Goal Wins is the name of the movie. It's, uh, yes, it's a soccer movie, but it could be a football movie. It doesn't matter. It's just like, it's, it doesn't matter whether you know soccer or not. It's a people movie. It's hilarious. You know, there's some very funny moments in it. So seeing it with an audience would help. And it's got that quirky Taika Waititi sensibility. It's worth seeing. 
All movies are more fun with an audience. I would say 99% of the time, there's almost no reason to want to see a movie alone in your home. You know, no movie, very few movies benefit from that, except maybe a really long sit or something that's intensely intimate and quiet, maybe. But even then, a quiet audience is really a powerful thing. Do you think uh, Next Goal wins as a possible award winners or a breakout performance or a screenplay or something? Yeah, no. No, it's just a good movie. Okay, well, you know, it's just a solid movie. And Michael Fassbender well, the, is just very good. So, Well, he's, he's a very good actor. So, you know, it is award season, and there's a dark horse out there. And that uh, is the Yeah, I, I, I saw that, that movie. It was called The Black Stallion. Uh, I believe it was in the 19, late 70s, maybe? Maybe the early 80s. And I remember, uh, I remember watching it going, oh, I want to read the book that it's based on. But then I learned, if you read the book beforehand, sometimes it's better. So now I'm reading a book. Uh, my next book up is uh, The Boys in the Boat, which I should have read years ago. And I haven't. I haven't read it yet. Well, you know, it's a, it was a huge bestseller. It's about... Young Americans, regular guys, not upper crust, uh, you know, Ivy League guys, but regular guys competing in crew, in rowing, and they are the underdogs every step of the way, and they ultimately end up setting their goal at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And of course, there they will be playing and fighting against the Nazis. So that is the story, the backdrop for the story of working class guys who are rowing during the depression just to have a roof over their head and just to stay, you know, fed. <laughs> it's just an opportunity not to be out in the cold trying to find a job amidst the Great Depression. And it's a true story. The book was a massive bestseller. And I kept wondering all award season, why is nobody talking about this movie? I just couldn't understand it. I'm looking at Gold Derby and all these places, and they will list the top 10 contenders, and then the next 20 hopefuls, and then they list you know, another 40 movies. And most of the time, I'm not seeing the boys in the boat mentioned anywhere. And I'm thinking, what am I missing here? It's a period film, Triumph Over the Nazis, uh, uh, feel-good story, uh, directed by George Clooney, who's Oscar bait. And then I realized, you know what? They're playing it smart. They want to be the fresh new face on the block. There's something not great about being the big movie with the big target on your back for six months, like Oppenheimer, uh, not to criticize the movie or how they released it. It's all a triumph, but critically came film. And since it came out, everyone said, oh, Oscar, hopeful it's going to be win best picture. Come November, come December, come January, people want a new story to tell. They want a fresh face. And this movie is going to be that. That's why they have kept the lid on it. They are finally having press screenings. They're finally doing stuff in early December. It releases on Christmas Day. It's a hugely well-known property. I mean, the book was really a big bestseller. George Clooney and this young cast of mostly unknowns will be out there promoting it. They're all handsome fellows. So I think they're just playing that smart Oscar game of saying, let's just become the fresh new face. So the reason no one's talking about it, because they don't want anyone to talk about it until they're ready to step up and say, oh, by the way, you thought the race was over? Maybe not. Well, and hopefully, uh, you know, because it's an Amazon movie and the, the thinking is, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it'll be in theaters for a hot minute, literally a minute. Like as soon as the, the first screening is done, they'll just throw it on Prime. My suggestion to them would be don't just let it play out. See what happens. And you know what? It's going to be just as good when it's on Amazon Prime four months from now. Yeah, nobody's going to say, why can't I see it, you know, the day after Christmas? That's not how people, people aren't even aware it's an Amazon film, you know? They really aren't. It's just a movie. And then when it comes exclusively to Amazon, they'll be happy. But they're not waiting, looking at their watch going, why can't I, I mean, 
I am, but I'm a lunatic, you know, 99% of the people are not doing that. But there's so much television out there, the demand to fill that content is real. We've talked a lot about fast channel. What's a fast channel? It's a free ad supported TV channel, right? Correct. Right. So you can get these for free. I'm not even sure where to go on to YouTube TV or what else elsewhere to find a fast channel. Can you tell me literally, sorry to ask you a curveball, but like, where do I go to say, where are my fast channels? <laughs> or do you just go online and look at them? Or how does it work? Um, well, uh, you know, it's, it, you know. If you don't know, you, just I say, I don't know. No, I, don't, I don't understand <laughs> what you're asking because, you know, some, some of them are, you know, they're basically like apps that you download onto your service. So YouTube probably doesn't have them. But if you have Roku, then you can download Pluto or you can download, you know, some other fast, you know, CBS so plus or whatever it's like called. Fubo is an ad. You got to pay for Fubo, right? Yes. It's hard correct. to keep track of them. So you can't just go to every service and find your fast channels. You have there, you have to go to the platform where they're on. Are they exclusive to them? Like if I go to Pluto, I guess they must be because Pluto has stuff like Pluto TV, the Pluto Star Trek, Pluto TV action, Pluto TV reaction, Pluto TV comedy. They've got all those areas. There are 1600 fast channels and counting. So some of them will be devoted to just, uh, you know, a, re a reality show or a cooking show. I don't want to name right, a that's a fast show because I don't know. Right. They might just to one show like Star Trek. There is a Star Trek channel. You can probably watch every Star Trek from every iteration, I assume, or maybe rotating amounts of them. Maybe you can't watch every episode in order, but you can go, hey, I want to watch some Star Trek. There it is. Uh, 1,600 channels. I, it's a, a, a huge amount. I don't know what to do. Guess what? Most people don't either. 20 channels account for more than half the traffic of fast TV. So I don't know how much traffic that is, but if they're shooting out 1,600 channels, it must be worth something. And I guess they have different contracts. So if you're on fast TV, they don't have to pay out the giant residuals that they do if you're on Paramount+. Plus. That, that must be the idea. It's cheaper to have a fast channel. You only pay money out, I guess, when it's making money or ads are on it and people are going to watch it. So it's not the same risk as putting it in your library on your premium service. And thus, you got to pay a bigger residual every month or every year. Yeah. So like a, a, an example of a, of a fast channel would be, you mm -hmm. know, the Hallmark channel or Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, the, the, the uh, what's his name? Graham, uh, what, what's his the the, the chef no, no. Uh, yeah yeah not gordon, guy gordon ramsay gordon ramsay that's his gordon name. Ramsey, yeah. yeah yeah he's got his own ch fast channel because why because he's got hundreds of hours of programming why not just blump them all together and put them on a channel bingo throw some ads in there and you, you can, got yourself a fast you can, channel and you can still watch them on other it's not exclusive most of the, in most times you can watch it on wherever gordon ramsay's channel is available elsewhere right yeah i mean you know i, know I was on, staying at a yeah. like an airbnb somewhere uh and they had no television, but they had like a Roku of some kind or like, I don't know what it was. And, and there was a whole uh, Jamie Oliver channel. I watched one oh, Jamie Oliver episode after another. I was like, man, this guy knows how to cook. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> I like Jamie Oliver. He's a good guy to try to do some good work. Here's a shocker. Uh, I looked up The Black Stallion. It came out in 1979. It's a lovely film, if you've never seen it. Almost a silent film in the first half because it's just a boy and a horse together. Uh, it's really beautifully done. It got two Oscar nominations. It was a critical hit and two Oscar nominations. One, a nomination for Mickey Rooney, and another one, 
for film editing. What I can't believe is that it was not nominated for cinematography because it's so gorgeous. It's one of the great shot films and it's directed by Carol Ballard who really knows cinematography. And I just cannot believe, you know, the cinematographer was Caleb Deschanel, uh, who is one of the greats and it's one of the most beautiful movies you'll ever see. And it didn't even get a nomination. Go figure. But I mean, it's not a big deal. The movie was a hit. It's got critical acclaim. It's a long lasting classic that everybody should watch. Well, and, and do you know who was nominated that year for best cinematography? I was about to look it up, but I didn't. Yeah, you know, it was The Deer Hunter, Vilmos Zygmunt, okay? Uh, the Heaven Can Wait, the Heaven Can oh, Wait, that, William yeah. Fraker. Uh, same time next year, The Wiz, mm-hmm. and Days of Heaven, Nestor Almendros, which actually won. Well, that's your one. Three of those should not be on that list, I would say. And uh, the Black Stein should have been on there, but I, I have no objection to, of course, Days of Heaven winning, though the Black Stein is right up there. So, but yeah, Days of Heaven is a, a landmark film in cinematography. You know who else? But I did else? say big and deal. Uh, I know. And it was a big deal. And Laurence Olivier won an honorary Oscar during that particular ah. ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <coughs> sorry. But since you did say big and deal, it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is a story about a story. What do I mean by that? (laughs) Univision. They did an interview with Donald Trump. Mistake number one. Uh, In any case, that's not a political thing. It's just, you know, why do an interview? Um. That interview shocked everyone with its friendly tone. Trump, of course, launched his presidential campaign by attacking immigrants, especially Mexicans, in racist and demeaning terms. He's rarely let up, so it's no surprise that Univision, Telemundo, and Latin press coverage in general has not been a safe space for Trump. Until now, that is. After reportedly being wooed by Jared Kushner, Univision sat down with Trump and offered, you know, they offered him some questions, all of them softballs. Worse, the Democratic Party saw its political ads yanked at the last minute without warning. Now, top anchor Leon Krauss, he's quit. He quit Univision. Krauss hosted the evening news for many years and spent almost two years in Univision's late night news slot, a la Nightline. Not anymore. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's another example of media consolidation. Univision was, uh, a big chunk of it was bought by Grupo Televisa, Univision, I should say. And uh, that group in Mexico has bought as much of Univision as it can. They'd love the laws to change so they could buy even more, but you're, uh, foreign companies are not allowed to buy more than a certain percentage of media companies in the United States. But they have a very big chunk of the company, and they are known throughout Latin America, and especially Mexico, for currying favor with whoever is in power. They don't care whether you're a good guy or a bad guy. They will suck up to you. The opposite of what journalists should do. This is not about saying Univision should be mean to Donald Trump and nice to Biden. It's about Univision should do its job and give every leader you know, a serious, hard-hitting interview that holds them to the facts and questions them when they're telling lies, uh, just as they should do with any politician. Uh, But the Grupo Televisa is known for sucking up to leaders just because they want to have more favorable business environment for them. So it's a sad day for Univision. Jorge Ramos, save us! He's one of the, you know, they're great uh, political reporters, and hopefully the outcry will keep them from sucking up too much and uh, throwing part of the Latin vote to Trump that he wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. Uh, some people wrongly said, oh, the Latin vote is up for grabs. It is not up for grabs. 
the Democrats will win the Latin vote substantially. The question is by how big of a margin. Now, you know, um, my daughter, who is applying to colleges, she's a senior in high school. She's taking uh, AP Gov. So it's about the you, you know U.S. government mm-hmm. and how it works. And so the other night she had this homework uh, and it was all about media consolidation and the, how the media plays with politics and plays into politics and the uh, uh, electoral college and how presidents are voted for. And I had to explain to her what media consolidation was. And I explained, you know, there were three channels in 1979 and then, you know, what, what, what happened? And I couldn't, I couldn't get it across to her. And the teacher showed them some videos in class. And I said, you know what? There is a video uh, of Sinclair television stations. They're all locally owned, or so you think. They're all locally operated in different cities across the U.S., but they're forced to say the same thing on these editorials, these uh, political editorials. And I showed her this YouTube video where all of them, like one station after another, is saying the exact same thing until until they show all 40 at once saying the exact same thing. And she said, that... He should have just showed us this. I totally get it now. All those stations are owned by one group and they can force them all to say the same thing, whether they want to or not. I said, that's media consultant. Bingo. There yeah. you go. Well done. Stick with Latin America. What's up next? Well, uh, let's talk about Spotify. Billboard magazine is talking about Spotify. and for, In fact, they're reporting that Spotify, you know, the music and podcast and book streamer. Yes, Spotify. That's Spotify. They are planning to exit the market in Uruguay. Now, you might be asking, why? That country's parliament changed the laws to call for more equitable remuneration for artists. Since the law doesn't spell out how this would work or where that money would come from, whether it's the royalty pool Spotify is already committed to paying out, or whether Spotify has to come up with even more money itself, the company says the liability is too high for it to remain in the country. Spotify says it already pays out at least 70% of every dollar it takes in to rights holders like record labels and publishers that represent artists. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. Of course, uh, companies hate it when individual states have laws and they have to conform to this patchwork of laws as they got. What they like is a big national law in the United States, preferably one that they really love that's really favorable to them. Same thing when they're operating around the world. They hate it when all these different, they love to have broad agreements that cover huge markets so they don't have to deal with every single country. Uh, nonetheless, this this particular law in Uruguay does seem pretty vague. You know, if they're not going to spell out exactly how it's going to happen and where it's going to come from, maybe it's not ready to be a law yet. So I do have some sympathy for them. However, if I get to take all the movies and show them in theater, I am already paying out 70% to the studios. It's like, I get to keep 30%, but so what? <laughs> it's, you know, it's like they don't create anything and yet they're bitching about, uh, you know, the artists who are getting very, very little There's no question everyone is wrestling with how to make sure more money goes to the people who deserve it so they can continue to create the music that fuels your business. Spotify's had access to all these libraries for years. They're still losing money. Something's wrong. Yeah, well, I would say you're right. I mean, really, Uruguay needs to take up the problem with the labels because essentially what Spotify is saying, look, every dollar we get, we immediately take 70 cents and give it to the artists. Now, the way we give it to the artists is we give it to the labels. And they have to then dole it out. 
So I'm I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that Spotify pays nearly enough out. They've wasted a lot of money trying to create original content, buyouts of other stuff. I don't know why they shouldn't have to pay out 90%. Why 70? Why do they get a third of all the money? They don't create any music. 90% of it should go to the to the labels and the artists and and work out how better to do it. Why 30 why 70%? <laughs> why shouldn't why shouldn't they get most of it? Is their damn music? You know, but figuring out what's the right split, I guess you have a lot of empathy because you deal in exhibition in theaters where they get like 40 to 50% or 30% of the box office gross because they've got all those, you know, movie employees who are sweeping the floors. Right. But Spotify doesn't have the same mixed costs, do they? It's not easy having a worldwide streaming service with all the distribution centers for the for the drives, hard drives, and all the storage stuff that they need. But it's not quite the same as having a big company with tons of employees. It's it's a different issue, I think. So the the proper breakdown, I don't know, but I wouldn't say well they're giving seventy percent. That's plenty. They're not paying enough because uh, it's not enough. Even if all of it went to the artists, I would say. But I don't know. But what about uh, Amazon? Uh, maybe you have a thought about this. The UK is one of the best places in the world to make movies and TV shows. It features a hugely talented community of cast and crew and sound stages that are second to none. From James Bond to Star Wars and, of course, Harry Potter, the UK has a storied filmmaking history. But the pandemic was brutal. With more than 90% of all UK production coming from overseas, meaning Hollywood and the like, making movies in the UK, any downturn in production is tough to recover from. So the UK is looking at its industry, and Amazon had a word of warning. Uh, Nice movie industry you got there. Be a shame if anything happened to it. Okay, Amazon didn't quite say that, but it did literally say this in a statement to the Parliament Committee examining high-end movie and TV production. Amazon said, it's important for policymakers to appreciate it's much easier to change the location of a production than it is to relocate for other parts of the economy. The production landscape is hyper-competitive, with jurisdictions continually looking for ways to attract high-end TV and film productions. Short-term policy changes or additional costs to doing business could see an immediate impact on productions moving away from the UK and at short notice. End quote. Capiche? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Ah, I think it's a big whoop because the reality, I mean, I, I don't understand what did the UK do that to even warrant this? Did they... Uh, you know, they're looking gonna- at what what are we going to how are we going to bolster this industry? Should we be charging more of a service charge? Uh, how should we be taxing this? What tax breaks are we giving people that are too onerous? You know, companies love to pit country and city and state against each other so they can get huge tax breaks. So you end up luring somebody to your state and you can say, hey, we created 10,000 new jobs and they don't pay any taxes for the next 10 years. And then when they're ready to re-up, they're like, well, you want us to move to another state? It's harder to do with a factory. But when you get those great deals in advance, uh, you know, it's a real threat. And so that's why you have state after state competing for bragging rights and yet not really getting the tax base they deserve. In this case, you can see TV shows that were in New Zealand that moved to London. Remember? <laughs> Lord of the Rings, yeah. the Rings of Power, right? And they're like, we can move it again. There's some other countries saying, we'll give you a better tax break. And so they've got them over a barrel and they're like, oh, we don't want to lose the production. And it's all the countries competing with each other at a race to the bottom so that nobody benefits as much as they should from having that production hosted in their country. So the government's trying to find the right balance and Amazon's like, don't you dare. We're ready to leave anytime. I think it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, because the reality is, 
everything like what they what Amazon is saying is almost self-evident. Of course, like it, it, the people making it's that a threat. Law, it's yeah. a threat, but it's not but a threat. They would you, do it anyway. It's like it's not a threat. You would do it even. You don't have to tell us you're going to do that. You would do that. So, well, not a good company that's responsible and, and a good member of the community would not do that. They're not going to up upend stakes and up in all the lives of their employees and, and the, and the community that they trust to say, well, we're going to move to Moldavia to make our next season of Lord of the Rings. Cause they gave us 2% less on our tax break. You know, not but everybody. Isn't, would isn't do it that. what they're talking about? Just production, not the actual, it's not like Amazon would leave entirely the UK. It's just like, Oh, they're well, talking we'll about the, you're, they're making a show or a movie. They do it at Shepperton studios. Instead, they're saying next year we'll take it somewhere else. We're not talking about Amazon isn't a physical structure anyway, by and large, we're talking about them taking their company of Lord of the Rings, which generates hundreds of, you know, tons of money and saying, we'll shoot it in another country. If you don't give us the tax breaks we demand, we'll up and get out of here. Don't even think of trying to raise a penny on us because we can bolt. We did it to New Zealand. We'll do it to you. That's a threat. Yeah. Well, and I would say it's, it's almost a, it's a, it's a rhetorical threat because it's always out there. That threat is always out there. So, I mean, maybe saying it to them makes them feel better, but okay. It's always, it's always, I mean, that's look at Vancouver in the United States. That's, you know, all, all production went to Vancouver during the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So it has to end, Sperling, the, 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 the race to the bottom by states in the United States competing for businesses to bring their business there, their headquarters there is a disaster economically. It's horrible deal for the states. The company should be ashamed for trying to put them over a barrel and blackmail them into giving them ridiculous deals. Well, that's true. And, that is well, true. That's what I, we're talking about. Amazon saying, if you don't give us everything we want, we'll bolt. And that is unconscionable. At some point, you know, you have to, you have to be a responsible corporate citizen and they're not doing that here. That's and I would say for, you know, here in the United States, and I know that there are countries that have the same thing, those people that offer those kind of production rebates, so to speak, uh, it's, you know, there's always a question, is it even worth it? Like, are we making any money on this or are we it's offering not, a billion dollars not. in- yeah. Are we offering a billion dollars in rebates for $500 million in, in economic activity? Well, then we just lost $1.5 billion. You know, so it's like building a, an athletic stadium for a team. It's a total waste of money and always has been. And I'm a Yankee fan and I fought bitterly to keep New York City from subsidizing the New York Yankees and the Mets. They don't need the money. Let them threaten to move to New Jersey. A, they probably won't do it. And B, if they do, good. Go away. Because it's yeah, not besides good they'd be building on a swamp in New Jersey, and everybody knows that. <laughs> but maybe they can, uh, you know, what is this next story about SWAT? They, they, they canceled SWAT? I didn't even, uh, I guess uh, they should put it on Netflix like Suits, and maybe everybody will, uh, anyway, being canceled. That's sure exactly has- what happened. Don't you listen to our show? <laughs> That's exactly what happened. They canceled SWAT, and it, and it surged up the charts on Netflix getting to re-up the final season. We've talked about this before. Well, they, you know, I, I guess, uh, as you mentioned, it, it can be good. And that's what the, the CBS drama SWAT is learning. Because when the network pulled the plug on the still high-rated drama, its star bemoaned the loss of a rare network show led by a person of color. Fans also spoke up, especially by binge-watching episodes online that made the show a very hot property indeed. That led CBS to schedule a shortened final season that would allow the police drama to end on its own terms. 
Uh, it, you know, if it was up to them, they'd say, we're not ending at all. That's our own terms. Uh, but, you know, now the show is headed to cable. SWAT just signed a deal to be stripped on the cable channel WeTV starting, um, let's see, the 17th of November. Oh, starting right now. Minus. Yeah, it's starting right now. It's the first time the drama has run on cable, despite entering its seventh and final season. How is that even possible? If you've got six seasons, you should be on some cable network. I don't. The show also, by the way, streams on Netflix. Well, I guess that's how it streams on Netflix, Hulu, and is syndicated on Nextstar-backed networks. Whatever that is, I, I have no idea what that is. The final season of thirteen episodes is not included in any of those streaming deals. Big deal or big whoop? Well, this is interesting. Nextstar, by the way, owns local TV stations, a chunk of the CW, News Nation, and Antenna TV, among other cable channels or outlets that are available online and the like. So they have a conglomerate of stuff that they can show shows on. It's like owning a bunch of local stations that you can strip a show on. So that it's like local syndication as opposed to on a cable channel. I highlighted this because I can't remember the last time I heard about a cable deal. Somebody saying, hey, we've sold it to a cable channel. I mean, they're still doing it. But my God, it's been ages since I've heard it talked about in the trades. It's like it's such, they're like, oh, where's it streaming? This is all they want to talk about. There's still money being made in, in putting shows on cable and stripping them. This is a classic example of a show that works well stripping, works well in cable and local stations like Nextstar has and stuff like that. So there's still money to be made there. People are still there. I've got YouTube TV. That means I probably have some of those local channels that are available. And uh, I have WeTV. So I would be able to watch SWAT whenever I want, you know, when, when it's airing on those channels. So, you know, it's still money to be made. And it's a nice blast from the past to hear them talking about a, a, a show going to cable. Basic cable. Wow. Who knew that could still happen? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, as soon as I said I didn't know what Nextstar was, I was like, oh, that's right. They're that group. But yeah, you're right. They're, they own CW now. I mean, pretty much. A chunk of it. I, I don't know if they're yeah. controlling, but they own a chunk of it. Yeah. Um, because, of course, you know, David Zaslov. By the way, have you read that David Zaslov? You, big deal or big whoop? 8,500 word piece on David Zaslov in the New York Times Magazine. It's like a book, that thing. Unbelievable. He must, he must have had a de an understanding they would not publish that until after the strike was over. I mean, I don't know if he could get that deal or if that's appropriate, but... If he didn't, and they published that when it was still ongoing, that would have been an even bigger disaster, I think. He's like talking about the endless renovations on his home. It's like, oh, God. Like, talk about clueless. That, that sounds uh, actually very, very Inside Baseball-esque. And it's yeah. in Inside Baseball. And by the way, Nextstar owns 75% of the CW. So you're right. They, they own it. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of remember them buying that. And I remember thinking at the time, who's Nextstar? So like every time I hear that name, I'm like, who's Nextstar? Doesn't matter when, unless they buy Showbiz Sandbox, I'll probably be like, who's Nextstar? Fingers crossed. Speaking of which, uh, hey, give, give me the number for Nextstar. Sorry, I was calling to my <laughs> yeah. imaginary assistant. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, we're definitely, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Like in the market or on the hunt. People are like, oh, we're in play. We're in play. <laughs> we're definitely in play. We're on the bubble. We're on all, whatever. Uh, put, put more lingo in there. Uh, can you tell them I'm, I'm just, I'm just under the weather today? Can you tell? Yeah. You just tell them you don't feel great. You've felt under the weather for two weeks. And I'm like, 
get to your doctor. And you're like, well, I tried to telehealth and a nurse and I don't know, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going it's back not, to It's not COVID. You've been testing yourself for COVID. So as far as we know, at least based on the home tests, it's not that, though there are some strains that don't show up in those home tests, uh, but they're useful and they should be used. That's a good idea. But yeah, you want to get, you shouldn't be tired for two weeks. You need to see a doctor. Well, that, uh, that doesn't sound like inside baseball. That sounds like inside human. <laughs> But Inside Baseball, which is a segment on this particular program, is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Let me tell you, the strike is over, okay? Both of the strikes, writers, actors, but we're still dealing with the fallout and what it all means. So here are some quick hits and what what are people saying about like, let's say, strike season? First of all, let's talk about one thing. Just I, I know that you're going to get to this, but Justine Bateman? She, uh, she's got a lot to say, but Michael, take it well, away. She's, she's served on the board, uh, for SAG-AFTRA. She's been a big player. I think she got elected to the board, of course, and she's a smart woman. She's published a number of books, none of which I've read, but I've, I've got them in my queue. I would like to read them. She's an interesting person. She played sort of a, a dimwit on Family Ties way back when, and that tells you how, how, uh, that image can lodge in your brain. I'm like, oh, she's not, she's smart. You know, it's like. Of course she's smart. She's an actor playing a person who was not the smartest, but she was a sweet character on Family Ties. So she's an interesting person. I'd love to talk to her, but she had a lot to say about the deal. Um, and she specifically zeroed in on SPs or synthetic performers. Now, she has a lot of issues about a lot of areas of the AI stuff, but her big contention, her big focus is that she feels they should not allow synthetic performers at all, full stop. You can't stop AI as a tool, but you could stop, she felt, studios from using SPs, synthetic, entirely synthetic performers, instead of real actors in situations where real actors or even their AI-generated avatar could be used. She says it would be like the Teamsters allowing studios to use self-driving cars or trucks, I should say. So talking with Deadline, she said, quote, the weird thing about these negotiations, the AI section of it, is like negotiating with cannibals. You shouldn't be talking about cutting off your feet at all. But the conversation becomes just, well, how are we going to move your feet? And will we be grilling them or boiling them? And what kind of sauce are we going to put on them? So I'm not the one to talk to you about the best way to compensate someone if they see their digital double in something. I'm not an actor anymore. But you know, if I was, I would say I'm going to be scan free. I don't know. That's just me personally. I mean, as a filmmaker, I'll never use generative AI. I'm going to use humans. It's been done for 100 years and it's good enough for me. End quote. So a lot of people talked about, uh, you know, well, she unrealistic if she thinks they can stop AI in general. But when she's talking about synthetic performers in particular, that's an interesting point. Uh, as Jonathan Handel pointed out, this is the first time a union has had any symbolic say whatsoever in something that doesn't involve actual human beings being employed. So the fact that they have any voice at all about SPs is interesting and kind of a breakthrough. But as Justine points out, in the language that they're seeing, and we haven't seen the full contract yet, which is just, it takes time. And she said, well, maybe this one section, the one section that's the most contentious, maybe you can make that available. 
Maybe you could focus on that first. She says, when they say things like, we'll make our best available effort or our best effort, that means we're not going to bother. <laughs> when they say, we'll make our best effort to do this or that, or to have lots of women enroll, it's like, that means, yeah, we're not doing it. <laughs> best effort means nothing, she says. So we'll make our best effort to do this, that, and the other thing, or to involve you, that's meaningless. So well, I think it's well, interesting. You mentioned Jonathan Handel. He had a, a very good uh, solution that... He proposed to SAG-AFTRA a couple days ago, like about like five days ago. And two days later, they came back and said, yeah, we're going to do that. And it was, uh, you have to, you know, seek permission, right? You have to seek consent. That was the, the thing. You know, the, the studios would have to come back and say, hey, we scanned you and we're, we need to seek consent to use you for doing X or Y or Z uh, through AI. Uh, and he said, well, hey, SAG-AFTRA, why don't, nobody's, nobody knows where to turn to seek that consent, you know, people's agents change, people's managers change, their estates change hands, you know, so where do you go? You're the likely candidate to kind of monitor that and rule over that. So why not have them fill out a form that tells you what they are consenting to up front, then you can manage that. And during the next round of negotiations, actually include that in the contract language that says that you have, you know, that the SAG after will, will maintain that. And the, first of all, Independent producers will probably love it because then they don't have to come up with the contract language, uh, and SAG and and the studios themselves will just kind of have to adhere to it because SAG-AFTRA is kind of filling out the forms and saying, "Here's what Harrison Ford consents to." Well, it's different for a major actor versus the the, the true, standard yes. actor, of course. True. But yeah. my understanding is that they wanted to be the the way station. They wanted, and they were insisting from the get go that you have to come to us. You're not going to go to individual actors because they don't have the power. You have to negotiate with us. And they didn't get that, is my understanding. But separately, you're talking about scans and other things that's different from synthetic performers, which is we've got a scene and we're using an imaginary synthetic performer. It's not a human being. You don't, oh, you're you don't talking have about to SPs. scan anyone. It's not yeah, based. Okay. S, right, that's what her whole issue is about. Not, I mean, she has many thoughts about many areas, but SPs in particular, she said you should just ban them. That's like saying, Teamsters saying, sure, you can have self-driving trucks. They'd say, no, you got to have a driver on every truck. That too yeah. may end someday, I'm afraid. But that was her point. For SPs, there's no one to go to consent for because there's nothing to consent to. They do have a voice in the use of SPs. And I believe that's where there's possible language like, well, we'll make every effort to use a person or if, you know, in these times and we'll talk to the union about it, you know, that sort of thing. As opposed to saying, no, if there's a scene, you got a waiter or people sitting in the background, you can't use SPs. You got to use real people or scans of real people that they have consented to. Um, I think that's what she's talking about. So what about our next thing? It's defining a hit show. What do you think about this? For some reason, the studios and streamers have been pushing the idea that they'll define a hit show as 20% of their subscribers on any platform watching that show in the first 90 days. Now, SAG-AFTRA has already said, well, guess what? We got a number. Next time we can say, you know what? It only covered so few shows. It should be 10%. And the studio said, well, how about 15%? And they'll renegotiate that number. Every but why 20%? And more importantly, I want to know why 90 days? Does that make any sense to you that the only shows that are going to be hits are ones that are out-of-the-box hits? Because there's lots of shows that build up momentum over time. Well, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I, I would say, you know, some, here's the problem. You are negotiating in a vacuum. You have no idea <laughs> what, whether 90 days is accurate or not. 
because Netflix never tells you. Maybe they're like, yeah, well, 90 days because most of the people watch it on the 91st day. You know, so who knows? So you're, I think you need transparency first. Then you can start negotiating with actual figures and actual deadlines because right now it's a, I don't know, like how does 20% of the people want? I don't know. When, how, how soon do they watch it? I don't know. Well, well, they are getting some numbers, of course, that they're going to be able to see in certain situations and not share them widely. But that's there are going to have some transparency about stuff like this because that's how they can determine it. But uh, you're right. You always want a third party involved. But in my mind, all the people who, you know, Netflix loves to tout all their out-of-the-box hits. They love it when Wednesday is a huge hit right out of the box. They they go on and on. They don't give you full access to the data, but they'll say, hey, I made 1.4 billion minutes, 2 billion minutes. They talk about it all the time. And I'm thinking, why do you care if it's, why wouldn't you want to tout a show that became a hit after six months? Like, doesn't that count? And nobody, even with these running tallies of numbers, nobody says, here's the total number of minutes viewed for this show in throughout its lifetime. Like Gilmore Girls. You know what I would do? Ten. I would mm-hmm. do what they do with movies. And that is yeah. total yeah, box down office. every week. A scale yeah. based on total unique viewership. I don't know whether you can do unique or not, but total viewership over time. If it reaches X over a period of time, if it reaches X, then it's it's only 2% because you didn't, you didn't get it. You, you know, you, it's, it's a low 20% percentage. of subscribers, whether it takes two months or two years. Right. Then you get 2%. Oh, it reached 75% of subscribers over seven years. Oh, well, that's a lot. Now you're up to 5% or whatever it is. Uh, it's a sliding scale that now I'm sure look, Anything I think of and anything I'm proposing now, I can almost guarantee you somebody has thought of already. So I know I'm sure, not like- I'm sure. Well, no, but when I look at the trades, they do not cover ongoing tallies of say stranger things. I want to know each season, whatever numbers they have access to. When I'm looking at Wednesday or Stranger Things or Gilmore Girls, which is an acquired show and falls under different you know contract stuff, I'd love to know, oh, Gilmore Girls over the last two years has been viewed five trillion minutes. And the show's in the top 10 every single week. Grey's Anatomy, Stranger Things. I'd love to know the full running tally, just like you'd know the full box office. This weekend's, this week's tally and the f- total tally, that's a very reasonable switch. And the people who have access to some of the numbers could do that. They don't have them once they fall out of the top 10, but at least they know them when they're in the top 10 and reaching a certain level. And why not add it up? So it's something that the trades can do right now. Now, you said, talked about David Zaslav. He was in a huge profile from the New York Times. I'm assuming you read this quote. Uh, He said, yeah, yeah, the Writers Guild, they were right about pretty much everything and their demands were reasonable. Uh, And, you know, now we're probably overpaying them. Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> what did you think of that? Yeah, I think that um, he gives a lot of material to the person who pens the artificial, int- the uh, AI Zaslov. Have you ever seen this? AI Zaslov? No. It's on no, YouTube. I'm not on social media. I don't have no, time. No, no, it's for on this. YouTube. It's on YouTube. And, <laughs> I don't have time. That's social media. I don't have time to scroll YouTube. <laughs> oh, God. I don't so ever funny. look at YouTube. He uh-huh. started talking about like, you know, wh- which, which shows he's going to put on, uh, on the shelf, you know, keep people guessing, you know, you never know which show I'm going to put on the shelf. Uh, it's, I, I, I don't even know anymore with David Zasloff. I give up. Well, the stock has fallen by 60% since he took over from $25 to $10. That's of uh, this morning, at least. Uh, the New York Times compared what he was doing 
with Warner Brothers Discovery to the producers. This is when they started dumping shows like uh, a season of Snowpiercer before it aired or Batgirl. They realized they could make more money by dumping TV shows than they could by releasing them. <laughs> it's like the we'll make more money from a flop. You know, we'll get it. We'll get five hundred percent of the budget, and no one expects any money back when it's a flop. And so they had the same thing. Why show a show? We can make more money if we dump it. That's of course assuming it doesn't become a big hit. So it's uh, it's not good when you're being compared to Bialystok and Bloom. And his quote, well, yeah, they were right. Their demands were reasonable. And now we're probably overpaying them, meaning it in a good way. He says, you know, I don't mind overpaying for great content. It's like, dude, you've been paid $246 million in one year alone. If you never received another penny, you'd be overpaid for the rest of your life. And he cannot give good interviews. It's just like, yeah, you were wrong. You cost your company hundreds of millions of dollars by extending the strike when you didn't need to. And their, their demands were reasonable every step of the way. Yep, that's about right. Yeah, I, I just think uh, nobody's writing the story of, maybe they are and I'm just not reading it. Should these deals have been done in the first place? I always said. Of course, of course, everybody says that. We said that, yeah. You're, at the end of every strike, you say, ah, I should have made this deal in the first place. Save a lot of pain. It's easy to say, but hard to do. But when the business has changed dramatically in the past 10 years and the demands of the people are not, I want to work one day a week for one hour and be paid $100,000. You know, there are actual reasonable demands. Writers saying, can't you pay us on time? Stop screwing us over with our little payments. Uh, we're not making any money anymore. We used to make thousands of dollars. Now we make tens of dollars off our shows because they're on streaming and we cannot pay our bills. You know, we cannot be working writers anymore. People who are successful. We're not talking about the people who never make it. We're talking about people who have made it and now find I can't pay my bills because the bottom has fallen out of the business. It's totally new environment. We need to figure out new ways to make this work so we can have working actors who are working, booking roles, people who are writing, and yet make a living. You know, they can't work second jobs. That's what you do before you make it. Now we've made it. And now we're back to, you know, being hard scrabble again. It's, it's not a good idea. We want a working middle class for the arts. You're in TV, your movies, you're acting, you're writing, you're scoring. You should be able to make a living when you're actually working regularly. And that wasn't happening anymore. Well, okay. So we, we have a ton of stuff to go over here. Uh, what do you want to cover? We're almost done. We're oh, almost okay. done. You got no, I a ton of stuff. Dream. All right. All right. IATSE and Teamsters, yes, this is what we're going to watch for. When will the studios and streamers sit down with the next union facing a strike? It's not until like the middle of next year. If they start meeting with them in January, they will have learned their lesson that these people are serious. They are united. Their lives have changed dramatically. They just paid a huge financial price by the strikes that you yourself, David Zaslav and other studio heads, admit were reasonable demands, and yet you strung it out and destroyed everybody financially for six months out of hubris and stupidity. So the sooner you meet with them and take their demands seriously, the sooner we know you will have learned your lesson. And if they play brinksmanship and don't meet with them until May or June, then we'll know they've learned nothing. Uh, I think it's part Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. They will not meet with them until they have to. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I would say much like, you know, that line at the post office on April 15th with everybody rushing to, to, to submit their taxes. Everybody says, oh, it's because nobody wants to pay their taxes. No, nobody wants to do their tax. Nobody wants to actually physically <laughs> do their taxes. And for and here's a for instance, when uh, right now the national, the in ICTA, it's, a, it's a, an industry group, they're running the North American Cinema Awards. 
I've reached out to at least 60 different movie theater chains in North America to say, hey, you should submit your your new projects, your refurbished projects for consideration. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you all of the submissions will come on November 21st, one day before the deadline. They will all like, we have like two submissions now. There'll be 50 submissions on November 21st. It's just, you know, never, nobody does anything until the last possible moment. It's kind of like the, this is not a, this is not a kid cramming for a final exam. This is a multinational corporation with studio execs paying, paid tens of millions of dollars a year with thousands, if not tens of thousands of employees. They have the manpower and ability to not behave like a kid the night before final exams and to say, yes, we should meet with these people so we don't screw ourselves over, don't shoot ourselves in the foot, and don't bring about another strike that cripples the industry. It might be wise for me, since my stock has dropped 60%, to meet with them in January. No, there's yeah, no, not I an excuse to say kids cram for the final exam. So there you go. Justine Bateman is talking about AI. Why? For example, Edith Piaf. Warner Music has made a deal with the estate of singer Edith Piaf, the, the little sparrow from France, who's of course dead, to create an animated biopic using her image and likeness and voice. On YouTube, which you talk about, I actually do go onto YouTube sometimes, but not just to scroll around. They've launched something called Dream Tracks. This uses an AI to create music tracks using the voices of participating artists like John Legend, Troy Savan, Demi Lovato, Charlie Puth, Sia, and my good friend Alec Benjamin. Uh, so you can like create songs and things in their voice. And some of them are like, yeah, this is cool. Others are like, this is a little scary and weird, but uh, you know, let's see what happens. Like they're not sold on it necessarily, but it's interesting. And they can see the, you know, the visibility of it being good for them short term. They're not sure what they think about it long term. Certainly there are examples of AI faking superstar voices and releasing songs into the ether and pissing off Drake and others are like, and Bad Bunny, and this a person who posted a song with, I think, Bad Bunny on it, he's like, oh, you don't like it? Well, you can record your vocal on this if you like, and then we'll post it again. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, you know, it's this nobody person doing it with AI. So AI is everywhere. It's a tool. You can't put it in the back in the box, even if uh, some people would like to see that. And we've just got to deal with it. Um, and finally, Fran Drescher, they talked about winners and losers. Uh, Fran Drescher, I think, is clearly a winner. Uh, she did a great job. Uh, it looks like a good contract from everything I can tell. I, I imagine it's the best they could have gotten. And uh, she really, you know, caught fire with people in a normal race sort of way. However, people like Justine Bateman are speaking up and saying, I don't like this. I don't like that. And she's like, ah, you know, <laughs> she's yelling and like, ah, you're all naysayers. You're all negative, And you don't know what we had to do. It's like, no, that is not the right note to strike. They're not betraying you by critiquing the deal. They're just not happy. You should acknowledge their concerns and emphasize the overall good of the deal and how any concerns can be negotiated the next round without sending vindictive or above it all or painting those people who criticize it as ignorant and selfish. You say, I agree with them. There are things I don't like in this contract. There are things I hate in this contract. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff I love. It helps a lot of different areas. We want to make it stronger and better. We've broken ground in some areas, and I know it can be better, absolutely, and we're listening to you, but this is the best deal we could get right now. We can't afford to push this any further, so I hope you'll support it and help me fight for even more the next time around. That's what she should do. Well, you know, I I'm sure that... Uh, she's listening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're well, sure she's listening, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I... 
You're tired. You're tired. A few people died this week. Cool and the Gang's drummer and songwriter, George Bell. He was the drummer in the gang for its entire storied career. He died at the age of 74. He was a co-writer on classic songs like Ladies Night, Jungle Boogie, and of course, Celebration. Celebrate. His drumming is among the most sampled music in hip hop. And when asked to describe his style and the style of the band, he said, it's the sound of happiness. That's pretty cool. And they really should thank Tarantino. I really feel like Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction and their use of Jungle Boogie really lit a fire under Cool and the Gang. They had the massive success of Celebration, which was a song played at you know the Olympics and every event. Just one of those omnipresent hits that sort of overshadowed their entire career. And I think it's very cool that they sort of had a resurgence for their whole catalog and not just that one song. Now, did you ever watch uh, NASCAR stock car racing? No, but I did actually watch the other day. I watched uh, the F1 in Las Vegas, which was on at a convenient 10 p.m. for those of you on the East Coast. Uh, But the reason it was done that way is, of course, F1 is a worldwide sport and it needed to be on at certain times in Europe and in the Middle East and Asia, etc. So uh, I watched that. That was pretty phenomenal. Well, um, it got sort of mixed reviews in terms of how it impacted the locals and stuff. Um, but as long as it was a good product, I guess that's what matters on the air. I used to watch NASCAR for a little while when Jeff Gordon was around and Rusty Wallace. Uh, but sports broadcaster Ken Squire, known as the voice of NASCAR, he died at 88. He covered stock car racing on TV for more than three decades. He gave the Daytona 500 its nickname, The Great American Race. And a snowstorm helped make him a legend. He started young when he was just 14 years old. Squire called his first race at the Morrisville Speedway infield. Quote, I did it off the back of a logging truck using a bullhorn. He recalled in 1975, reported the Hollywood Reporter in their obit. We linked to it in our show notes. He said it ended in a riot involving about 400 people and the Vermont State Police had to be called out to stop it. But it was the Daytona 579 that made his name. It was the first time CBS covered the Daytona 500 from start to finish, and Squire was in the booth. Even better, a massive snowstorm kept most of the country trapped at home, ready to watch anything on television. And the race was a doozy with Richard Petty taking on young upstart Daryl Waltrip. Even better, a late race crash led to a brawl on the sidelines. That's always fun, which only added to the excitement. NASCAR and Squire never looked back. Uh, Follow our link in the show notes to read the entire obit by Mike Barnes at The Hollywood Reporter. Finally, the publishing industry lost a member too soon. This this is an interesting story, actually, I think. Yeah, she was. She's with the imprint Razor Bill, owned by Penguin Random House. She died of ovarian cancer at the age of 38. But this is a happy story. McIntyre felt lucky to be getting excellent health care and treatment while she battled cancer uh, in not being saddled by massive debt in the process. Instead of moaning about her fate, she thought about others. She prepared a wish to be posted when she died, since she was so lucky to have great health care. She hoped people would remember her by raising, she hoped, $20,000. That money can be used to buy up medical debt. And you can leverage it. You can buy a ton of debt for pennies on the dollar and erase it, which means if you have $20,000, you can get up to 100 times that amount in debt erased for people overwhelmed by medical bills. So if you raise $20,000, you could wipe out $2 million in medical debt for other people. So far, the fund has raised enough money to wipe out $50 million in debt. 
So way beyond what they hoped for. They're at like $500,000 now and counting. So that's very cool to see. We've got links to her story and the actual uh, fundraiser in our show notes. And that's Casey McIntyre. I was talking over you when you mentioned her. Oh, that's right. Casey McIntyre, uh, an editor at Razorbill. Yes. Now, you know, uh, if you want to... see our show notes, you can go to showbizsandbox.com, which is where you'll find ways to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, uh, Spotify, because uh, we're not asking them to pay us more money. Um, In fact, we would be appreciative if they paid us any money. Indeed. Um, but, uh, you know, you can find us there uh, on, on any podcast aggregator. Uh, it's usually where you can find us. And please do rate and review us on any one of those uh, podcast distribution platforms. As it helps us out when you do. You can email us dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on... Uh, twitter.com just search for at showbiz sandbox so showbiz sandbox is where you you know showbiz twitter.com slash showbiz sandbox that's where you can find us facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox is where you can find us on facebook again all of this information is on our website showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group mgmt they can be found on their own website who is mgmt.com michael you have a website and every week at something new and exciting. What is it this week? This week it's michaelgiltz.com. I was going to send you to cancelculture.com because that's the phrase I was hinting at you to, to recognize, you know, when you blank somebody out, like we're going to cancel X. That's what I was going to say and just say Twitter. But you were like, I don't know what you mean. And so I'm like, cancel culture, cancel culture. However, uh. cancelculture.com is owned by someone who has a book out about it. And I'm not a big fan of the book, so I don't want to send you there. So go to michaelgiltz.com. Which is actually where you can find all of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 